that we're going to be doing together. I really felt in my heart to take a few weeks to actually study and look at the seven churches of Revelation. But before we begin with that, I thought let's take a week where we build a little bit of context around the book of Revelation and about what's going on in the book. And so um, I'm excited for this journey together. I'm excited to dive into God's word um, together to understand him more. And, you know, I've said this many times before, but the more I study the word, the more I dive in, I feel like the less I know. And that is like the beautiful thing about the Lord because he is incredible and we will never, ever know him completely to the level that we want to, I think, until we're in heaven one day. And um, until then, I pray that we would have hearts that are pursuing him and pursuing truth and pursuing revelation of him. So we are going to look at Revelation chapter one today. And like I mentioned, just building a little bit of context and a little bit of understanding, because I know that for many people, the book of Revelation can be scary and intimidating. And so it is a lot easier just to ignore it. I've heard the phrase, don't worry, it'll all pan out, you know, specifically in terms of the end times and Jesus' second coming, it'll all pan out, so don't worry about it. And, you know, where that is true, it will pan out. Jesus is coming back. He is sovereign. Everything's going to be okay. I think when we have that mindset and when we kind of shut the book of Revelation and ignore it, we miss out on the richness of, of revelation of who Jesus is, because that is exactly what the book of Revelation is actually all about. It is a revelation of Jesus. Um, and you know, in Revelation chapter one, verse three, it says to those who read this book, a blessing. So count me in. Like, I want that blessing. I want to be blessed by the Lord. I want to be blessed with understanding and revelation of who Jesus is. So we're going to just look at a few bits and pieces today. And, you know, it might not all seem to make sense. I am definitely going to go a little bit off topic, um, as I tend to do so very well. But I know that it's going to all come together. And I pray, the prayer of my heart is that you are going to just be blessed through this teaching and also just gain such a greater understanding of the Word of God. So, um, you know, many of us would be familiar with the fact that the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. That is the beloved of Jesus the one who sat at his side at the Passover, uh, you know, at the Last Supper. Um, John, who was entrusted to look after Mary after Jesus died and went up to heaven. And John writes this book while he was in exile um, on the island of Patmos. And Patmos was part of the Roman Empire, and it was kind of like a, like a working prison. And so it's a little island in, I believe, the Aegean Sea. And prisoners were basically sent here to work to their death. And this is where Jesus gives John this incredible revelation of all the things that would unfold. I want you also just to, to keep in mind for a minute that the book of Revelation is that revelation. It's a singular. It's not a plural. This is not multiple revelations. This is one revelation. And it is a revelation or an unveiling of Jesus. The word revelation is actually taken from the Greek word apocalypsis, and it basically means to lay bare or a disclosure of truth. So very different to our understanding of the word apocalypse. You know, when we say the word apocalypse, we think doom and gloom, zombie takeovers, end of the world, meteorite, meteorites and meteoroids and all those kinds of things destroying earth. But really in its simplicity, 
the word apocalypse or apocalypsis is a laying bare of truth. And so um, we, right from the get-go, I just want to encourage and remind you that this book is nothing that we need to be afraid of because Jesus is the very center of the book of Revelation. Jesus is the focus of the book of Revelation, not the Antichrist, not the beast, not the false prophet, not the weird things that we read about in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the focus and the center. Jesus is the author of this book. Uh, you know, exactly like every other book in the Bible, Jesus is the author of this book. And Jesus is in complete sovereign control of what unfolds in its pages. And so I know when, for many of us, we read this book and it just seems absolutely horrific what we read. There is doom and death and destruction and confusion and chaos. And I just want to encourage you, if you read further on and you, you know, you feel compelled and led to study this book, just remember that Jesus is in control because he is sovereign and he is Lord of everything. And that should actually give us great peace and excitement that Jesus is in control. You know, the purpose of the next few weeks as we head into looking at the different churches that Jesus addresses is not to get into a heated discussion and debate around the rapture or the antichrist or whether the book of Revelation is purely symbolic or it's already happened or it's still to happen. You know, that is a topic dear to my heart. I love the end times. I love discussing it. I love wondering. I love debating. And maybe one day I will endeavor to do a complete teaching on the book of Revelation. But for now, um, we are literally just going to look at the seven churches. What did this message mean to each of the churches? What does it mean for me today? Does it have relevance for me today? Is there I'm sorry, are there things that I should be pulling out and um, applying to my life? You know, so much of Jesus's teaching while he was on earth centered around his second coming. And it fascinates me that the church at large has kind of stopped talking about it. We don't want to talk about the end. We don't, we know that he's coming, but that's enough. Like we don't really want to talk about it. And, you know, regardless of your beliefs around the end times, the rapture, the antichrist, the tribulation, the trumpets, the bowls, the seals, the angels, regardless of what you believe about all of that, the truth of the matter is that Jesus is coming again, whether that's in the next 10 years or 10,000 years. And until he comes as believers, it is our responsibility to steward that truth. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus, a sinless man, fully God and fully man came and died for us, for our sin. He died and was raised to life, but it doesn't end there. The beautiful, beautiful truth of the good news is that he is coming again to take us, his bride, to be with him forever. And so it is our responsibility, it is our mission, it is our mandate to steward that truth and to teach people about that truth, not in a weird way, not in a crazy way, but in a beautiful, godly truth. And so, you know, I, I'm reminded of the words of the great, I think it was him, I'm going to give him the credit, the great evangelist Reinhard Bonnke, and he would often say that it is his responsibility to plunder hell and to populate heaven. You know, I live with an urgency of not wanting anyone to spend an eternity separated from God. We say that so flippantly. Oh, I don't want people to spend an eternity separated from God. But have you actually ever thought about what that looks like? 
You know, God is everything good and just and lovely. There is no community outside of God. There is no peace outside of God. There is no compassion outside of God. There is no love outside of God. And so an eternity separated from God, I mean, that in itself is horrendous. But for people who are not in heaven for eternity, they don't experience the love of God, the compassion of God, the peace of God, the community of God. And I have such an urgency in my heart to try and reach anyone in my world with the truth of of the gospel so that no one that I know is separated from God for eternity. What an, a horrendous and disturbing thought. You know, I, um, I'm reading notes because I really am so passionate about this topic. And so if I look to the side, it's just because I don't want to miss out on anything and I don't want to forget anything. And so um, that is just why I might look to the side a little bit. But I am here, I'm present, I'm focused, and um, I'm very passionate about this, this topic, if you haven't noticed already. And if you know me, for all my friends and family, you know that this is seriously something that I am passionate about. And, um, you know, I think every generation should live as if though we're the last and we're the end. Um, because that is sometimes the fire and the urgency that we need. Um, we don't have time anymore. I really believe this with all of my heart. We don't have time anymore. We don't have time to just be relaxed and have relaxed attitudes about things. We need to have a posture of urgency about the Lord and what he is doing and about the prophetic timeline that we're on. We don't have time to focus on our own agendas anymore. We don't have time to build earthly empires because surprise, it was actually never meant to be about that. Our only empire that we should focus on and care about is the empire of Jesus Christ. Jesus came and he brought his kingdom to earth and it is our duty and responsibility as believers and his ambassadors to actually continue that kingdom to, to advance his kingdom. And when we died to ourselves and we were raised to life in him, our sole mandate and mission became about him and everything that we do should be about him. And that can look so different. You know, at the moment I am homeschooling my son. I'm a stay-at-home mom and I'm homeschooling my son. And there are many days where I can feel like, but what am I doing for the kingdom? And I do not belittle the reality that how I teach my son and speak into his life and teach him about the truths of Jesus, that is my mission and that is me focusing what I have in my hands right now on the Lord. And so wherever you find yourself in whatever season of life, if you're working, if you're studying, if you're retired, if you're a grandparent, if you're a mom, if you're single, whatever it is, whatever you have, let it be that we use everything that we have to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ on this earth. You know, when we read the book of Revelation, it is so important for us to understand how deeply rooted this book is actually in the Old Testament. So much of the imagery, so much of the description that we read is actually from the Old Testament, which is actually a shadow of what is already in heaven. I know this is mind blowing. Um, I think, you know, so often we, when we think about heaven, we just think about gold streets and picnics and beautiful things, which 
of course it will be, but so much of the intense and graphic imagery that we see is actually foreshadowed in heaven as well. So we're going to just take a little step back. I feel like the Bible is so beautifully interwoven. And so we're going to step back into Exodus for a moment because this is going to help us to flesh out some of what we see in Revelation chapter one. And you know, when God freed the children of Israel from Egypt, and that was 400 years of slavery and 400 years, which God had um, already told Abraham, this was no surprise or it should not have been a surprise to the children of Abraham that they would be freed after 400 years because that's exactly what God said. And God is faithful and true to his word and promises. Sometimes we just have to wait a little bit longer than what we would like. And, um, you know, we can ask any of the children of Israel one day, they waited 400 years before they were freed from slavery, but God was faithful. And so after they left, um, Egypt and God took Moses up onto Mount Sinai, where he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, but he also actually gave Moses a lot of um, instruction around how they were to live. And this kind of made up the law. So in Exodus 25, we read the account of God talking to Moses about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was basically um, a tent. And it was, you know, also called the tent of meeting where Moses and the priests would actually come and meet with the Lord. And this tent followed the children of Israel for the 40 years that they journeyed in the wilderness. And it housed the presence of God in what we know as the holy place or the holy of holies, sorry. And, you know, um, the tabernacle actually, it's fascinating to me because the tabernacle was actually just a... um, a shadow of the temple in heaven. I know, yes, there is a temple in heaven. And I want to read to you from Hebrews um, Hebrews 8, verses 5. And this is, um, yes, Hebrews 8, verse 5. Sorry, let me go. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle God said, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. The reason why God was so pedantic and insistent about the measurements and the fabrics and the colors was because Moses was actually tasked with the most special and sacred responsibility of making something that already existed in heaven. I know it is absolutely fascinating to me. You know, the temple, which was later built by Solomon, was a copy of the tabernacle. Yes, of course, the temple was way more opulent. It was, you know, extravagant because it was a structure that was, you know, it stayed in Jerusalem, unlike the tabernacle, which moved around the wilderness. Um, But the, 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 the temple was a copy of the tabernacle, which is a copy of the temple which exists in heaven. And that is why Moses was was to adhere to these measurements and the directions with such care. And, you know, often when we read those scriptures, like 500 cubits by 10 cubits by six, you know, we go, ah, we flip the pages because we're like, this doesn't even make sense. It's kind of a little bit boring. But to Moses, it was so important that he got it right because he was not just building a structure. He was replicating something so dear and so important. You know, um, Revelation, the book of Revelation comes with over 500 illustrations from the Old Testament. And no wonder we get so confused when we um, read the book of Revelation, because let's face it, we all skip 
pages from the Old Testament, we find it hard and confusing and it doesn't make sense. And, you know, I'm sure most of us have used, oh, well, we're not under that anymore. We're like the new covenant. So let's read the new covenant. Yes, we are, but we miss so much when we skip the Old Testament. And so I want to encourage you. Here's a little challenge and a little encouragement. Read the law. I know it can put you to sleep, but read the law. Read Ezekiel. Read the books that you find challenging. Read the minor prophets and actually invite the Holy Spirit alongside you and trust that while you're reading this confusion, he is going to actually illuminate scripture to you and make it all come alive because I promise you it is all connected. You know, um, the tabernacle that we read about in Exodus 25 might seem so random, but we're going to see in a minute just how important the tabernacle is and how it actually ties into the book of Revelation. So I just want to take a few minutes to flesh out some verses from Revelation chapter one. And we're going to start in verse uh, four, where Jesus says, John, to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And so I just want to stop and say, I'm sure you know this, but just in case you don't, this is not the Asia that we know today. This is not the, the continent of Asia. You know, the Roman Empire was vast. It was big and it had provinces throughout the known world. One of those provinces was the province of Asia Minor, which is in modern day Turkey. And so the letters and this message that John is sending out to the churches of Asia Minor are seven churches um, that, are, that were situated in what we know today as um, Turkey. And, you know, these were not the only seven churches in existence at this time. You know, there was the Church of Jerusalem, the Church of Galatia, the Church of Corinth. Um, but it was these seven churches, you know, seven in scripture refers to perfection and completion. And so in addressing these seven churches, God is actually addressing the complete church throughout the complete church age, which means that God was not just addressing the church of Smyrna or the church of Ephesus, but he is also addressing me because I make up the church. And so there is a message in each of these letters, not just to our churches, but there is a, a message for us as individuals that we need to, to, to hold on to, to heed and to correct in our lives. So, you know, the book of Revelation is... <laughs> A beautiful gift, actually, to the body of Christ, I think. The entire Bible, all 66 books of it, are inspired by God and written by the Holy Spirit through man. And so Revelation is no different, but Revelation carries a greeting. And you can read about this in chapters 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation. It is a greeting from God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the sun, which is amazing. The only book that I see in scripture that carries a greeting from the Trinity. You know, um, if we look at verse four, it says from him who is, who was, and who is to come. You know, this is Hebraic language. This is a description of Yahweh. Yahweh, the self-existent, the eternal, the unchanging God, Yahweh, who um, revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter three. This is covenantal God. This is amazing God who, who wants to be known by us. And so this is a greeting from God. 
This is a greeting to you from God, from Yahweh. This is a greeting from the seven spirits before the throne. Now, that's probably like a bit confusing. I remember the first time I read this, I was like, the seven spirits? That sounds a bit strange. But again, this is taken from language that we find in Isaiah chapter 11 where the prophet Isaiah gets a beautiful image and revelation of the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits before the throne speaks of the Holy Spirit and the seven attributes that he holds. And you can look that up in Isaiah chapter 11, but the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit are that he is the spirit of the Lord. He is the spirit of wisdom. He is the spirit of understanding. He is the spirit of counsel. He is the spirit of might. He is the spirit of knowledge. And he is the spirit of the fear of God. He is the most amazing gift that Jesus could ever have given us. The beautiful person of the Holy Spirit. And you know, I encourage you, jump into Isaiah chapter 11 and study those verses. Get to know the Holy Spirit. And um, oh, he's amazing. Like I know that I could not do life without him. So this is a greeting from Yahweh. This is a greeting from the Holy Spirit. And then this is also a greeting from our beautiful Jesus Christ. It says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You know, this title of firstborn from the dead, this is a title of preeminence. It's actually a superiority title. It's a title of priority. And it reminds us and it would have reminded the audience that John was writing to that surprise Jesus is actually the most superior and the most priority in our lives. We are nothing. You know, he is the firstborn. This is a messianic title. This is a Hebraic title. And it just is kind of a little bit of like God putting us in our place, I think, because so often we become the hero. We become the protagonist. We become the meat of the story. But the reality is that it's actually always been and always has been about Jesus. And we can never ever forget that you know Jesus being Jewish he came first for his people and he will come back for them again and so therefore a lot of the the language in the book of Revelation is very Hebraic it is very um you know it would have really penetrated the hearts of the Jewish people who would have heard this message so I want to jump down to chapter 12 and just keeping in mind this is a greeting this is a book from the Trinity which is so special. I mean, hello, I want to read this. I want to read it. I want to know it. I want to understand it. I want to keep reading it. I want to read it again because the Trinity has written a beautiful greeting to me and I want to know it. So I hope that that's your heart too. And, you know, I think I mentioned before, we'll probably read through the book of Revelation 5 million times and probably still not really quite understand the depth of what we're supposed to know. But you know what? I think as long as we are pursuing Jesus, pursuing truth, diving into his word. There is something so special about that. So we're going to jump down to chapter 12 and um, of, uh, sorry, we're going to jump down to verse 12 of chapter one. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, but, you know, here we have John. So he is on the Isle of Patmos and we don't really know how this, you know, took place. Was he in a dream? Did he have a vision? Um, was this actually in the spirit that this was all happening? But John is all of a sudden, you know, confronted with Jesus. He has a vision of Jesus. And it says in verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And among the lampstands was someone like the son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, um, and coming out of his mouth, mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. This is the Jesus that John sees. Now, I want you just to remember for a second, I briefly mentioned the tabernacle. Um, remember, there's this whole shadow world that the book of Hebrews kind of speaks a little bit about. In Exodus, God instructs Moses to build the tabernacle, which is the tent of meeting, where he would be able to come and meet with God. And the children of Israel would be able to see the tangible um, manifestation of the presence of God. And they saw this as well through the fire and the cloud that they followed through the wilderness. Um, one of the pieces that was found in the tabernacle and also in the temple was a lampstand or a menorah. It was one lampstand that had seven um, lamps on it. And um, this was made out of solid gold. And you can read about it in Exodus 25 verses 31 to 40. The golden lampstand was housed in the holy place. And this was kind of the room that was just before the Holy of Holies. And this is where the priests would come and they would offer incense, which was their worship to God. And, you know, they had this incredible responsibility, the, the priests, to fill the lampstand with oil and to trim the wicks. And God commanded Aaron and his sons that the, um, the light could never go out. It was actually imperative that the light from these lampstands would never go out. This was the only source of light in the tabernacle apart from the presence of God that manifested on the Ark of the Covenant. Each of these seven lamps was filled with oil. And as I mentioned, the priests would come in daily to fill the, the lamps with oil and to trim the wicks. Um, oil representing the spirit. And this is a reminder to us the priests would daily fill the lampstand with oil. We need to daily fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. We need to daily fill ourselves with the presence of God. We need to daily be in his word. We need to daily be pursuing him, trimming the wicks for the priests. You know, for us today, that represents being pruned and being molded and being shaped. Being pruned is not always fun. Well, no, it's never fun. It doesn't always feel good, but it is so necessary for us to be pruned in order for us to be able to display God's light in a beautiful, powerful way to our world. And so, you know, for John, the imagery of a lampstand with seven sources of light would have been so familiar to him growing up in, you know, the temple, growing up in synagogues, understanding the temple, understanding the tabernacle, understanding the imagery that came with the furniture in the temple. But when he turns to see the voice that is speaking to him, he sees not one, but seven lampstands, seven lampstands, each with their own source of light. You know, unlike the old covenant lampstand, these seven lampstands were not confined to one place. Where worship to God in the old covenant was confined to the temple in Jerusalem, 
You had to come to Jerusalem to bring your offering. You had to come to Jer Jerusalem to bring your sacrifices. It was in many ways confined. That doesn't mean that God was not able to reveal himself outside of Jerusalem because he did. And we see many examples of this through scripture. But if you wanted to come and worship God and bring your sacrifice and bring your offering, you had to come to Jerusalem. Unlike that, now in the new covenant, his presence and his glory is manifested within us. His presence is manifested within us. And so this reminds me of the words in John 4 when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. And he says, you know, this is me paraphrasing, but, you know, there was such contention between the Jewish people and the Samaritans about where to worship and how to worship and, you know, so much distraction and division between the two people groups. And Jesus says to the woman at the well, you know what? A day is coming where it's not actually going to matter where you worship. What will matter is those who worship in spirit and in truth. And when I see this imagery, when I see John seeing these seven lampstands, I can't help but think about that. The day has come where it doesn't matter where we worship, but it does matter how we worship. And it is vital and imperative for us to worship in spirit and to worship in truth. You know, in both the New and the Old Testament, the lampstand was not the light. The lampstand merely displayed the light. And this is something so important for us as we're about to look at the different churches and, you know, also reflect on how that impacts us and what it means for us. The church is not glorious in and of itself. The church is glorious because of Jesus. And because it displays the light of Jesus. Did you hear that? The church is not glorious because of itself. The church is not glorious in and of itself. It doesn't matter how big your building is, how beautiful your building is. It doesn't matter about all the frills and trills. That does not make the church glorious. What makes the church glorious is Jesus. What makes the church glorious is his light shining through and shining out of us. You know, similar, similarly, to the Pharisees, they looked the part, but never actually had the heart of God. And Jesus is addressing seven churches who, unfortunately, in many ways, looked the part, but never carried the heart of Jesus. And that is where the Lord has issue. And that's what he takes issue with. John doesn't just see these seven lampstands, but in the midst of the lampstands, he sees Jesus. Um, side note, this would have been the very first time that John saw his best friend, Jesus, since Jesus was taken and ascended to heaven. And for the second time in John's life, but, you know, probably with a lot more intensity, John doesn't see Jesus, his best friend, the carpenter. He doesn't see Jesus, you know, the sacrifice broken lamb on the cross. He doesn't see the grieved friend in Gethsemane. For the second time in John's life, he sees his best friend, Jesus, as true Jesus in all of his glory and wonder and splendor. And, you know, when John turns to see the voice of he who was talking, Jesus is not standing peripheral to the, uh, to the candlesticks. 
Jesus is standing in the very center. And again, this is such an important reminder to all of us that Jesus is the center of all things. I want to yell it because I think we've sometimes forgotten this. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the center. He has to be the center of the church and he has to be the center of our lives. And you know, we get confused when we take our eyes off Jesus. You know, in life, when we take our eyes and when we take our focus off of him, when we put ourselves in the center, when we put ourselves in the place of prominence, when we put other people in the center of our lives, our lives begin to become confused and fall apart. And so it is so important that we remember while we read this letter to the seven churches and when you read the book of Revelation, he is the center. And the minute we take our eyes off of Jesus, the minute we kind of put the Antichrist in there or the rapture, will it, won't it, when it, well, when it becomes about all those things and we lose sight and track of Jesus, things get confusing and things start to fall apart. So this is a little gentle reminder and a rebuke to put Jesus in his rightful place in your life, to put Jesus in his rightful place within the church. And this image we see, this image that John sees of Jesus would have been like fierce. It would have been absolutely um, humbling for John to see Jesus in this way. He is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, he is coming back as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is coming back as the Messiah for his people. He is reconciling all things. He is putting an end to sin. He is dealing with everything finally. And um, so what John sees is absolutely profound and beautiful. And, you know, I think it's so important for us to see Jesus as our best friend, to see him as the gentle lamb, to see him as our comforter, to see him, uh, you know, with his arms around us. But we also sometimes need to see this Jesus. And this Jesus is fierce. This Jesus means business. This Jesus is, you know, coming back for his bride. This Jesus means business. And so John sees him wearing a long robe. Now this speaks of stature and affluence and standing within community. You know, in Jesus's day, um, those who wore long robes generally didn't have to work. You know, it spoke of their wealth. It spoke of their stature. It spoke of who they were within the community. And, you know, I'm reminded of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, wealthy family, wealthy dad. And, you know, when he sees his son coming from afar, he has to hike up his robe to run after his son, which would have been a very humbling and, you know, um, shameful act actually for the father to have done that. But, you know, it didn't matter. His son was coming home. And so here we see this image of Jesus with a long robe. And this reminds us he's not coming back as the poor carpenter's son. He is coming back as the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hill. He is coming back as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that is amazing. And along his robe, he has a gold sash. Now, this is, again, priestly, um, priestly language. This reminds us that he is coming back as, you know, not just a good guy, not just a prophet, but he is coming back as the great high priest. So in his role as the high priest, he is well able to execute judgment and he is well able to trim our lamps and trim our wicks and do what he sees fit to do to the churches. 
you know, it was the priest's responsibility to be in the tabernacle, to be in the temple, to beautify that building, but to make sure it was in order. And so Jesus, the, to the letter of the, to, to the seven churches and to us, he is coming back to, you know, put in place how he always saw fit to have the church, if that makes sense. And I'm excited. So he has a long garment. He has a gold sash. He has white hair. Now this speaks twofold of both his wisdom. The book of Proverbs talks about how wisdom is demonstrated often through white hair, but it also speaks of his timelessness, his age. You know, he was before all things. Jesus is before all things. He was created in and of himself. And he is coming back with wisdom and purity. His eyes were like blazing, blazing eyes. And this speaks of his judgment. You know, I mentioned that it was the priest's responsibility to trim those wicks and fill those lampstands. And so it is Jesus's responsibility and duty, in a sense, to come back to judge his church. So we always just want to see Jesus like sweet little Jesus. He loves me so much and he does love us with an everlasting love. He went to the cross because he loves us so much, but that doesn't mean that we somehow escape his judgment. And his judgment sometimes just looks like his rebuke, calling things out that are wrong, calling things out that we've missed and, you know, bringing alignment to his word and to his truth. His feet are bronze. You know, bronze was the most durable and hardest metal in the ancient world. And it, um, it went through an intense process of refinement. You know, Jesus is both durable. Um, he is steadfast and true, but he is pure. He went through the ultimate refinement process in that he carried the weight of the wrath of God on him to the cross so that we could live um, in eternity with him. So Jesus is both steadfast and he is pure. His voice was like the rushing waters. You know, his voice is powerful and majestic and it commands our attention. Um, when you go to a really loud, big waterfall, there's no point in talking because you can't hear yourself. And so when Jesus speaks, quiet and listen, because he is commanding an audience and he has something powerful for us to hear. He is holding the seven stars in his right hand. And, you know, the seven stars represents the leaders of the seven churches that he is about to address. And this is a reminder that the leaders of these church, these churches, just like the leaders of our churches today, are in the hands of God. He has got them. He has got them and he wants the very best for them to the church of Thyatira and Ephesus and, you know, to Pergamum. Yeah, there was, there was rebuke, but Jesus had them and he rebuked them because he loved them. You know, out of his mouth came the two-edged sword. This is the sword we read about in Hebrews 4. This is Jesus's weapon and Jesus's weapon is his truth, which comes out of his mouth. I don't believe for a moment that Jesus is going to wield a sword and stab people in the heart, you know, but he will speak truth and his truth penetrates because his, his truth is a sword and it does what it needs to do. The book of Isaiah says it will accomplish that which it sets out to do and his countenance, his face shone like the sun. This is his glory and his glory is too much for us to look upon. Similar to Mount the Mount of Transfiguration when John saw Jesus with Elijah and Moses, his face shone like the sun. You know, we don't look up into the sun. It hurts our eyes. So it, it kind of demands of us a posture of reverence and bowing. And I think when we see Jesus one day in his 
in his full, you know, majesty, we are going to bow and lay prostrate on his, on the floor before him. Amen. You know, what we will see throughout the letter to the churches is um, unfortunately so much immorality and idolatry and false doctrine, which ran rife within the church. And unfortunately, this is something that still runs rife within the church today. Idolatry, you know, we make idols of everything. (laughs) Immorality, there is a lack of purity and false doctrine. We kind of make up our own truths to suit our own lives so that we can kind of feel better about ourselves. But this is not something that God can actually tolerate. He will not and he cannot tolerate this because um, our mission as the church, our mission as his bride is to show the unadulterated love and truth of Jesus Christ. And we are incapable of showing this when we are living immorally. We are incapable of showing this when we have idols and we set up for ourselves things that are above God. We are incapable of doing this when we have missed the truth of his word. And, you know, the reality is that Jesus is coming back not for a perfect bride, but he is coming back for a spotless bride. He is coming back for a bride that has kept herself pure for him. He is coming back for a bride that has remained sanctified for him. And so in these letters, we get a taste of righteous Jesus who is coming in love and in truth to address these issues and to greatly encourage the church to get her act together, to correct what needs to be corrected and to fall in line with his call and his heart. You know, the reality is if you study, um, you know, ancient Jewish wedding customs, once the bride and the groom were betrothed, the groom would often go away and he would prepare a place for his bride and the bride would not know when her groom was coming back. And that's why, you know, Jesus speaks in in different parables about this, to be ready, to be ready for the groom. And, um, you know, while the groom was away getting things ready for his bride, the bride had one duty and responsibility and that was to keep herself pure. That was to keep herself sanctified so that the minute her groom came for her, she was ready to go with him. And so this is the the heart of Jesus in these letters. The heart of Jesus is to encourage us to come back into that space of sanctification. You know, we have all made mistakes. We have all messed up. We are not perfect. And Jesus knew that we never would be. But what he wants us to do is to actually recognize the issues that are going on in our lives and in our hearts to correct them and to come back into alignment with him. You know, as we get into these letters, it is so important for us not just to view this as a rebuke to a once was church 2,000 years ago, but also to remain open to the spirit and allow his double-edged sword, his truth, to penetrate and pierce your heart so that if you are listening to this today, if there are any things that you can identify with in these letters, any areas of um, just a little bit of misdirection, you've gone a little bit of course, then I would ask that you would ask the Holy Spirit to reveal these to you so that you can identify with the things that you need to surrender and submit to the Lord. And so I am so excited over the next eight weeks We're going to learn, we're going to be challenged, we're going to be stirred, we're going to be encouraged, and I pray that it will bless your heart deeply.